Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For this show, I'm going to review three movies that came out this week. I actually wanted to review four, but I didn't get the chance to see the last film on my list, which was The Bad Guys. So unfortunately, I'm not going to be reviewing that this week, but I'm probably going to be reviewing it next week for you. So stay tuned for that. Also, I found out that uh, this show, well, this isn't something I found out, but this show doesn't have a website and... I have been meaning to give it a website. The only thing is, it's a one-man band. I'm the one who's doing the show, who's writing it, who's producing it, who is recording it, editing it. So adding a website to that is a lot of work. If I could find somebody else to do it, that would be great. But I found out that the um, domain, wordsonfilm.com, is available. That's the good news. The bad news is it costs nearly $3,000 to acquire because apparently it is one of those hot domain names that somebody else could snap up. I can't really afford to uh, buy that right now, but it might be a future decision, but just putting it out there. But anyway, back to the films at hand. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Northman. This is an epic historical action drama directed by Robert Eggers. And Robert Eggers is a young guy. He's only about 38 years old. He's from uh, New York City. And before he uh, directed The Northman, he directed two other films which have been uh, critically acclaimed. Uh, The first one was in 2015 where he directed The Witch, which is a movie that I loved. In fact, it made my top 10 list of the best movies of 2015. Unfortunately, it didn't uh, get nominated for any Oscars or any other major awards because those major award ceremonies, except for the ones that actually pertain to horror films, are actually biased against horror films. So The Witch is one of those films along with A Quiet Place, Hereditary, and a few others that I noticed were of exceptional quality that the major award ceremonies just basically ignored. Also, Robert Eggers directed, actually co-wrote with his brother Max Eggers and directed himself The Lighthouse, which I didn't actually get to see. That movie came out when this show was on hiatus, but I heard some great things about it. Plus, it has Willem Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Willem Dafoe, who's usually always great in a film, and Robert Pattinson, who is still trying to prove himself. And fortunately, with the last few films that Robert Pattinson has done, he has. So, The Northman is... Robert Eggers' third film. I don't think it's better than The Witch, but there's a lot to like about this film. So the plot of the film is as follows. It takes place in 895 CE, or as we know it, AD. Uh, CE is common era. That's the more politically correct way of saying AD or after the birth of Christ. But it takes place almost 1,200 years ago in the Nordic country where King... Our Vandil War Raven returns to his kingdom on the island of Harafs. God, these are really hard names to pronounce. On the island of Harafs, some island in the um, in Scandinavia, 
after his overseas conquest, and he's reunited with his wife, Queen Gudrun, who's played by Nicole Kidman, and his son and heir, Prince Amleth. And these are actually, as far as I know, these are people who actually existed. But the legend of Amleth, I'm going to tell you a little bit later what great work of art Amleth inspired. But anyway, at first, King Arvandil, who's played by Ethan Hawke, returns to his son, Prince Amleth, and all is well. But then, Arvandil's brother, Fjornal, Fjornal, God, I can't pronounce these names. Um, the, the king's brother murders him and tries actually to murder his son, Amleth, but Amleth actually escapes. And he's a young child. He gets on a boat and goes to the uh, land of the Vikings. And he is raised as a berserker. And a berserker, by uh, definition, is an old Norse warrior who is said to have fought in a trance-like fury, a characteristic which later gives rise to the modern English word berserk. But anyway, older Amleth, who's played by Alexander Skarsgård, makes it his mission to return to his homeland and kill the man who killed his father. And if this story sounds particularly familiar, even if you're not familiar with the legend of Amleth, it is because Amleth was the primary inspiration for Hamlet, the William Shakespeare tragedy. But this movie, The Northman, is like Hamlet on steroids. It is full of a lot of masculine rage and (laughs) pecs, but it's not quite as poetic as Hamlet is, but there are some things that are actually very smart about this movie. For example, the men in the film, for the most part, with perhaps the exception of Willem Dafoe's uh, cameo as the equivalent of a court jester, have one mission in mind, to be in great physical shape, to stay alive, and to kill anyone who basically stands in their way of that mission. It's not very difficult. But the women in the movie have a bit of a different uh, mission. They They basically have to be smarter. So when the men are being warriors, the women have just another vice, basically to stay alive by their wits. And that is evidenced very much by... Characters such as Nicole Kidman's character, Queen Gudrun, as well as Anya Taylor-Joy, for, who was who made her breakthrough in Robert Eggers' film The Witch, and she was amazing in that film. She's not quite as... She doesn't stand out quite as much, but I think she's probably one of the stronger actors in this film, and I mean actors as in just about everyone in the film. And she plays Olga of the Birch Forest, who is a Slavic sorceress with whom Amleth develops a relationship, um, based out of love, of course. So Anya Taylor-Joy is definitely the Ophelia to uh, Amleth's uh, Hamlet character. And, of course... The inclusion of Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicole Kidman's characters and making them as defined as they are, I think adds 
a lot of depth to this film that perhaps wasn't seen in 2007's 300, which was written by Frank Miller and directed by Zack Snyder. So I I do credit uh, Robert Eggers. I almost said David Eggers. David Eggers is the uh, author who I don't think is related to Robert Eggers, although I could be wrong. But anyway, Robert Eggers uh, wrote this movie along with somebody named Sion, who is an Icelandic poet, novelist, and lyricist. And it's clear from the set design as well as the props that are used here that Eggers and Sion really did their research for this film. I also mentioned Nicole Kidman and Anya Taylor-Joy being the stronger actors in this film. I should also note that Bjork is in this film. Yes, uh, Bjork, the Icelandic singer, who whose last name I can't pronounce, but she is known as the uh, Cirrus. And she plays a pivotal role in this film as well. She's just uh, in it very briefly. But it's it's clear that this film did the, the homework in terms of w- what it was like to grow up and survive in Scandinavia only about 900 years after the birth of Christ. And the visuals in this film are stunning. In fact, there are some scenes that take some myths of um, Norse mythology and bring them to light in this film. And I, I don't know if they exactly weave into the story quite as well, but they are visually stunning, not to mention when Alexander Skarsgård actually gets revenge on his father's brother, uh, other words, his uncle, who's played by uh, Clay Spangs, the scenes where he is killing just about everyone within that tribe are certainly violent, but they're also visually stunning. And the, the last scene, I think, where he finally takes on the his uncle, who is known as, and I'm going to try to pronounce his name, Fionnil, never mind. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to say his uncle. It's, I think, a little too brief, but I think that it certainly uh, is 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 visually captivating. So there are very few dull moments in this film, and I think that the movie used a really good combination of real props as well as. CGI special effects to make this film not only great to look at, but it also really adds to the story. I just think some of the visuals that pertain to Norse mythology could have been woven into the story a bit better instead of looking like over-the-top screensavers. So for that reason, The Northman gets my rating of a high check out because I do think that it's obvious that the directors and the co-writers as well as just about everyone involved with this film did their homework in terms of what life was like in Western Europe, uh, particularly in Scandinavia during this time. But I don't uh, necessarily think that the, the male characters were as deep as they could have been. And there were some scenes where the climax could have been drawn out a bit more. And instead, the, the movie felt like it built up to that climax and was all too brief. 
but I love the direction. The production was very well done and just about everyone in the cast, particularly the women in the film, uh, namely Nicole Kidman, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy and Bjork did really well in this film. So The Northman is definitely worth a look. I didn't love it as much as other critics did, but I do certainly think it is worth a look, and I appreciated all the work that was put into it. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is a very uh, long name, but it is a movie that is all about Nicolas Cage. It stars Nicolas Cage, and it is about him surviving in Hollywood, especially after the string of flops that he has done. And it also deals a lot with Nicolas Cage's uh, financial situation, which has been quite notorious and has kind of take, pulled him off the A-list a little bit. But Nicolas Cage is still a household name. He didn't get uh, overly involved in drugs or alcohol or anything that would really permanently derail his career. He just made some questionable financial decisions over the last couple of years and to his credit, he's actually been um, working consistently, although the movies that he's done recently have been, uh, for the most part, commercial duds and critical duds uh, as well, with a few exceptions. But this movie is actually directed by Tom Gormican, who has been writing and producing in Hollywood for years. The last movie he did was a film in 2014 that was called That Awkward Moment, and it had a lot of great actors in it. It had Zac Efron, Michael B. Jordan, Miles Teller, Imogene Poots, and a few other people uh, of note. But that was easily one of the worst films of 2014, and... I actually am proud of Tom Gormican for coming back with this film because it's his second film, but by no means is it sophomore slump. I think his freshman effort was a slump, but this action, this movie actually shows, while it's not perfect, that Tom Gormican does actually have a talent for directing. And in this movie, Nicolas Cage plays a fictional version of himself, and he's struggling with his career after being passed over for several major film roles, and while the movie doesn't say it, probably some of those film roles have involved the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because famously back in 2007, Nicolas Cage played uh, Ghost Rider, who was a uh, Marvel, who is a Marvel Comics character, but it's not part of the greater Marvel Cinematic Universe. It came out the year before Iron Man. And while uh, Ghost Rider could have been tied into the Avengers and the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that character hasn't been yet. And while he could be, it's doubtful that Nicolas Cage is going to play him. But anything could happen, really. 
I'd rather see Nicolas Cage play Ghost Rider in the Marvel Cinematic Universe than Jared Leto playing Morbius. But anyway, Nicolas Cage is um, constantly being uh, pestered and tormented by Nikki, who is who appears to him as his younger and more successful self. So Nicolas Cage in this film is borderline uh, schizophrenic in a sense, but I got to tell you when Nicholas Cage plays sort of his younger alter ego, Nikki, he is really funny. It's something about Nicholas Cage playing two people in a movie, which he hasn't done to my knowledge since adaptation in adaptation. He played uh, Charlie Kaufman and he also played his twin brother, Donald Kaufman and Donald Kaufman does not exist. It's just a, a figment of, well, he exists in the movie adaptation, but in reality, Charlie Kaufman does not have a twin brother named Donald Kaufman. It was just his more outgoing, extroverted alter ego. But Nicolas Cage, I thought, was brilliant at playing both those roles. And I'm not the only one who thinks that because Nicolas Cage was last nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actor for Adaptation. But... I think when he plays two people and he sort of plays off his other half, so to speak, there, there's actually a part of Nicolas Cage that really comes out as um, an actor. But anyway, so periodically throughout the film, Nicolas Cage has these schizophrenic conversations with his younger and more successful self. And he's very funny as this character, Nicky. But in reality... He has a contentious relationship with his ex-wife, Olivia, and his daughter, Addie, and is also marred by years of, well, actually, his his family, his ex-wife and his daughter, is marred by years of emotional neglect. And Nicolas Cage plays himself as a raging egomaniac. The reason he doesn't connect with his daughter very well is because they th- do things together that he wants to do but not what necessarily she wants to do. And this is the kind of uh, story that's been done before, but even though Nicolas Cage is really struggling, he's not struggling to keep the lights on or put food on the table, but he's waiting for another big break. But then he receives a million-dollar offer from his agent, Richard Fink, who's played by Neil Patrick Harris, to appear at a birthday party by a billionaire playboy by the name of Javi Gutierrez, who's played in this film by Pedro Pascal, who is a Chilean and American actor who in this film plays a, um, a, a Spaniard. And he's been acting for a long time. Uh, Jose, excuse me, Pedro Pascal. Jose is actually his first name, but his stage name is uh, Pedro Pascal. But he's been in... Movies like The Great Wall with Matt Damon. He was in Wonder Woman 1984, which I have not seen. And The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is his most recent film. And not only does this Javier Gutierrez invite Nicolas Cage to his party to have a big celebrity there, but he also wrote a screenplay in which he wants Nicolas Cage to act. So while Nicolas Cage turns down the opportunity to be in this screenplay, 
he decides to stay with Javi Gutierrez and have them write a screenplay together. And oddly enough, that's when the film uh, gets to become sort of a typical Nicolas Cage action film. But it it does actually have a really good twist to it, the fact that Nicolas Cage is getting involved in his more creative side and creating another life for himself as a Hollywood actor. Not to mention that when he really connects with Javi Gutierrez, he and Pedro Pascal work really well alongside each other, including in a scene where they're actually on LSD and they are driving around this small coastal town in Spain. Now, one of the rules about LSD is, well, first of all, not necessarily don't do it, but if you do it, don't take too much. The other rule is don't drive, but they break that rule in this movie. They end up uh, pretty much okay, but in the scenes where they're not driving and you're kind of hoping they don't drive off a cliff, uh, they they actually work very well alongside each other and are very funny because Nicolas Cage, when he really commits himself to it, is a very funny guy. I, I think a lot of the action movies that he's done has kind of undermined his sense of humor a little bit. And there are also some other comedies in which he's been in where he hasn't been quite as good because of really dumbfounding decisions he makes. Like for instance, in Peggy Sue got married, he would have been great if he hadn't put on a nerd voice. He, he put on this nasally voice that amazingly his uncle, Francis Ford Coppola, who directed the film, let him do, even though there were advisors of Francis Ford Coppola who kept telling him, please tell your nephew not to do this accent. That's one of the parts of Peggy Sue Got Married that didn't really do very well. But fortunately, I think Nicolas Cage, when he really commits himself to a movie, whether it's a comedy or an action film or especially drama, like Leaving Las Vegas, he's really good. And I think... My least biggest complaint about the unbearable weight of massive talent is that Nicolas Cage is really good in this film. He does pretty well playing sort of uh, a narcissistic version of himself. But I think the movie does fall apart a little bit when there are CIA agents who are tracking Nicolas Cage because they are convinced that Javier Gutierrez is keeping a teenage girl in his basement. Yes, that's right. And the CIA agents in this film are a miscast Ike Barinholtz and Tiffany Haddish, who try to be straight-laced CIA agents, but at the same time, they're trying to be funny and their usual comic selves. But the amalgamation of those two kinds of archetypes and their personalities don't really mesh particularly well. And I like both of them. Ike Barinholtz and Tiffany Haddish are really funny, but... When they came on the screen, especially when they revealed that twist that they were CIA agents, I wanted them to kind of get off the screen and move on. And I think once they were introduced, the movie sort of lost its satirical edge and became a Nicolas Cage action film or one of the more mundane Nicolas Cage action films that you find direct to streaming. And I think that the movie deserved a little bit better than that. But with that said, I think that Tom Gormican has come a long way as a storyteller and a director from 
that awkward moment because that awkward moment was one of those dumb romantic comedies where there were people who were supposed to be smart who were doing really dumb things. And I think that for the most part in the unbearable weight of massive talent, Nicholas Cage plays a guy who's yeah, a bit self-aware, but he's also very smart and he does do smart things when given the proper circumstances with the exception of the LSD scene where he and another guy who's on LSD are driving. That is absolutely not a smart thing to do. And in reality that would get you killed. But I think there's a lot more that works about the unbearable weight of massive talent than what doesn't. And for that reason, the unbearable weight of massive talent gets my rating of a low knockout. I think it's not so much a home run or a grand slam, but I do think it works as more of a base hit or maybe even a double if you really want to use uh, baseball metaphors like I just did. But I laughed a lot more at this movie than I questioned it. I think that it's a starring turn for, or rather a breakthrough for Pedro Pascal. I don't know if it's going to be the comeback that Nicolas Cage really needs right now, but I think it's off to a good start. And maybe if Nicolas Cage does another film that's as daring and he commits himself to it, it could be a comeback for Nicolas Cage, but very much like John Travolta and until the recent news, Bruce Willis, I have the feeling that Nicolas Cage is going to come back in a big way. And the unbearable weight of massive talent is an indicator that comeback could be sooner than we think. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. This is a documentary that was released exclusively on Netflix on April 19th, 2022. And it's been out for a little while, and it's getting a lot of reception on Netflix. In other words, by reception, I mean a lot of people are watching it because ever since its debut, it's been in the top 10 most watched things on Netflix. And I, I say things because it's immersed amongst not only the movies, but also the series that are on Netflix right now. So this is kind of an interesting documentary for me because I know about Abercrombie and Fitch, but I haven't been exactly a fashion guy. And I see a lot of these people in this uh, documentary who are now in their 30s and 40s who are talking about the fashion trends of the late 90s and early aughts when MTV went from being a network that was geared more towards high school and college students and went to being one that was geared more towards 12-year-old girls. I, I remember catching MTV the tail end of when it was popular, but... The reason I bring up MTV here is because MTV is one of the big reasons why Abercrombie and Fitch, which is a country that's over 100 years old, went from being a company that provided sporting gear for outdoorsmen, very similar to what L.L. Bean and Cabela's do, does now, to being a fashion trend for teens and basically mall rats. And 
I grew up in an area where there wasn't a mall and the the popular kids weren't necessarily the ones that wore the latest latest fashion trends. As for me, I didn't really care. I either wore what my parents bought me or I wore something that I found at a thrift store. And in a lot of ways, I'm still like that. My parents buy clothes for me. No, (laughs) they haven't bought clothes for me for years except on special occasions. But yeah, I'm more of a thrift store type of guy. If it looks good on me, if I think it looks good on me, I buy it. And if it doesn't, I just move on. But, you know, the, the concern about wearing the Gap or Carhartt, that hasn't been a thing for me. But it is kind of interesting to see a documentary about a bygone era where people hung out at the mall. And there could be a great documentary that could be in the works about why mall culture isn't a thing anymore. And that's, I guess, another story for another time. But it it was interesting for me to see what Abercrombie and Fitch did right and did wrong during their heyday. And you get a lot of feedback, a lot of interviews from the people who actually worked at Abercrombie and Fitch at both at their headquarters and also in their retail stores. And with that late nineties and early aughts, uh, excess before the dot-com bubble burst, it was a whole new world. Uh, it was a different world before nine 11 than it is now. And nine 11 itself didn't change everything, but it changed a lot. And it, it was, it just seems, especially nowadays where there are kids who are in college who don't remember nine 11 because they were babies. In addition to the fact they don't remember when the ball dropped on December 31st, 1999, because they, if they weren't born, they were crawling around in diapers. Um, I I guess documentaries like this seem like a a product of a bygone era, but to me, it just felt like yesterday. But this documentary is directed by Allison Clayman, and Allison Clayman has done a number of movies and TV shows. The last project on which she worked was an HBO Max original documentary film called Jagged, which was about Alanis Morissette and centered on the release of her 1995 album, Jagged Little Pill. And that was an album that changed everything for Alanis Morissette. That's a movie that I haven't seen, but it's um, a film that I might actually see now that I have HBO Max. She also directed another film, a documentary in 2019 called The Brink, which was about Steve Bannon, and it follows Steve Bannon from his latter days in the Trump administration to just after the 2018 midterms as he attempts to form a global populist movement with like-minded individuals. So Allison Clayman has done a lot of documentaries about some very heavy topics, and the heaviest topic in this film is about the fall of Abercrombie & Fitch after it became the clothing line for a certain type of consumer. And by a certain type of consumer, I mean a white male in his uh, late teens to early twenties, who was a bit of a preppy who took the collar and, and popped it up on his shirt. 
And these are the kinds of people I absolutely hated in high school and college, which is probably why Abercrombie and Fitch had no interest to me. But eventually, as Abercrombie and Fitch reached the peak of its popularity, not only was that kind of consumer their downfall, but even bigger was the fact that the people who worked at Abercrombie and Fitch had to work, had to look a uh, certain way. And they didn't necessarily even have to have retail experience or be even good at selling things. But in addition, that was a that was a disadvantage for people not only who didn't look that way, but also people of color. And there are people who are interviewed for this documentary who are of color, um, one of whom is a black woman who looks absolutely stunning. And it's a wonder why the Abercrombie and Fitch management basically put her on the night shift and had her do things like clean the windows when she wanted to do the day shift. But there was another way in which Abercrombie and Fitch faced its downfall. And it's when it was printing t-shirts that had very hurtful Asian stereotypes. For example, there was one t-shirt where I can't remember the name of the fake laundry company, but it was of this very exaggerated uh, Asian person who did laundry and it was the walk brothers and the slogan for them, not a real company, but this was a massive Asian stereotype. The slogan for the walk brothers was two Wongs make a white. Yeah. And it's a good thing that I didn't go to Abercrombie and Fitch and buy one of these shirts. And of course, Abercrombie and Fitch may face some major backlash amongst the Asian American community. And it's no wonder because it basically sold the same kind of stereotype, the embarrassing stereotype that, um, Andy, Mickey Rooney played, I almost said Andy Rooney, wrong Rooney. Mickey Rooney played in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which has put a permanent black mark on that movie being quintessential American cinema. But Abercrombie and Fitch did a lot wrong. It's not really clear from this documentary exactly why the uh, why they resorted to creating these hurtful stereotype t-shirts. Although a a lot of the reasoning behind it was hearsay from the people who were being interviewed. And many of those people who were being interviewed who worked at Abercrombie and Fitch, either at their headquarters or in the stores themselves were not Asian. The, The Asian people from whom you hear are people who basically grew up with an Abercrombie and Fitch in their neighborhood mall. And were telling them, telling the, documentary filmmakers, how hurtful this was. You don't actually hear from the Asian, Asian people or Asian Americans who, um, actually worked there. In addition to that, you also hear a lot of people who worked at Abercrombie and Fitch, most of whom were white saying that this t-shirt got approved by one of the few Asian Americans who worked at Abercrombie and Fitch. They gave it the go ahead, but they did raise some certain interesting valid speculation that what is an Asian person going to do when presented with this hurtful stereotype? Are they going to, if they get angry, that's just going to hurt their reputation. 
But, of course, if they don't give it the go-ahead, that also reflects badly on them. And I think that was a very good point that this documentary brought up. Unfortunately, it's hearsay. I wanted to hear from an actual Asian person who worked at Abercrombie & Fitch, and we didn't get that. Also, what hurt this documentary was its admission that the CEO of uh, Abercrombie and Fitch at the time, who really brought it from an L.L. Bean-like store to its, its place in the fashion trend marketplace of the late 90s and early aughts, couldn't be reached for uh, Target. The, uh, Mike Jeffries is his name. He used to be the CEO until the late aughts. And usually sometimes when a CEO doesn't get interviewed for a documentary on a company he either runs or used to run, that doesn't necessarily hurt the documentary. But what hurt here was some of the the hearsay that's brought about by people who are otherwise speculating. And the people who also worked at Abercrombie and Fitch say they had nothing to do with what was bad about the company. And the director doesn't seem to really hold that to them. Doesn't really say, doesn't really challenge them to say, well, you did work here. So wouldn't you say that that you have some culpability and maybe not everyone does, but you basically have a documentary that's full of deniers. So I think that Alison Clayman, after making several independent documentaries about very heavy topics, excluding Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill creation, definitely made this film because Abercrombie and Fitch, even though it's not the company that it used to be, is still a hot topic, and its business practices worked for a while until they didn't. And they should be held accountable for some of their, for a lot of their business practices, especially when it came to flagrant discrimination. But I think this movie didn't really have that sort of focus that it could have had. And it it was also bogged down by speculation and hearsay. It still uses a lot of great archive footage and it tells some semblance of a story, but it's not the strongest documentary that I've seen, but I do give it a marginal checkout because it does, I think very validly reflect a different place in a different time. And it also holds Abercrombie and Fitch accountable for many of the things that it did wrong that, that I'm glad didn't fly today. And I'm also glad to see that Humanity is progressing, at least in the Western world, and things that were okay 20 years ago are not okay now. And it also shows that we still have a lot of work to do, but White Hot should have had a lot more narrative focus and a lot less hearsay to bog it down.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for my next segment, which is What's Coming Up Next? This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters for the weekend of April 29th or the week of April 25th through April 29th, 2022. And I got to be honest, the first film that is probably going to be the biggest film in theaters for next weekend, I'm not really excited about because the actor in the film has let me down throughout his latest films so many times. And I don't even know if I'm going to see this film. If I do, I'm not particularly going to be happy about it. So before I tell you who stars in it, I'm going to tell you the name of the movie, what the movie's about, and then I'm going to tell you who stars in it. The movie is called Memory, and it is about an assassin for hire who finds that he's become a target after he refuses to complete a job for a dangerous criminal organization. It is a remake of the 2003 Belgian film The Memory of a Killer, which I have not seen. The star of this movie? Liam Neeson. And unlike Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, who are making not quite as auspicious movies as they used to, Liam Neeson is making just dull movie after dull movie, and they're not being released to streaming like maybe they should. Because I don't know anybody who really gets excited for a Liam Neeson movie anymore. It's just drudgery. And this is coming from a guy who used to be in great films and was the go-to guy when it came to creating a film that was of high caliber. Not just a movie that did well at the box office, but also one that was critically praised as well. Schindler's List is a primary example of this. And yeah, Liam Neeson have d- has done some commercial films like Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which was not a perfect film, but he was excellent in them. But I think even Liam Neeson himself is getting tired of his own films. So will I see Memory? Maybe, but I'm just going to sit there and just feel uninspired as I'm watching it, I suppose. But if you're interested, the movie also co-stars Monica Bellucci, who we haven't heard from for a long time, Ray Stevenson, and Guy Pierce. Now, Guy Pierce is one of those actors who's usually great in a movie, even when the movie is bad. I, I haven't seen him be bad in a film of any kind. Yeah, I've, I've seen him in some bad movies, but he himself is usually pretty good. Him and Alan Cumming are usually the actors who are the, the most dependable. But maybe Guy Pierce adds a shred of credibility to memory, but I have a feeling I'm going to come back into the show next week and say, memory is forgettable. That's a really good line. I think I'm probably going to use that. But anyway... The other films that are subject to be released in theaters, or the next film that I'm going to cover here in Spoken Word, is a film called Anais in Love. It's a film that follows Anais, who is a 30-year-old woman that is broke and has a lover she doesn't think she loves anymore. And she meets Daniel, who immediately falls for her. But when Danielle, excuse me, Daniel, when Daniel lives with Emily, um, Anais also falls for her. This sounds actually a lot like uh, the movie Henry and June. Hopefully it's better than Henry and June. And Henry and June, coincidentally enough, was about a writer whose name was Anais Nin. And she was a Spanish writer who had uh, a fling with the author of the book 
Tropic of Cancer, which was one of those books that came out that was hugely controversial at the time because it was very sexually explicit. And the movie Henry and June made history for being the first mainstream movie to be rated NC-17. And you could definitely tell when watching the film that they added extra nudity to, to earn its NC-17 rating. Unfortunately, it took away from the story. But <clears throat> N.I.E.S. in Love is a film that I assume is rated R. The star of the film is actually, her name is N.I.E.S. Nimostier, who I assume is not American uh, based on her name, but I could be wrong. She is actually a French native, even though she has what I believe to be a Spanish first name. She's a lovely woman. So Anais in Love is one of those films that I think is going to be in an independent theater near me. It may not come to theaters next weekend, but if it does, I'll see it and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters is one that's called Firebird. This is a movie that follows a handsome, soulful young soldier who embarks on a clandestine sexual affair with a charismatic fire pilot, also male, on a Soviet Air Force base at the height of 1970s communist rule. Gay people in the Soviet Union, that is a hot topic, especially now considering that the Soviet Union, well, Russia, is um, on people's uh, radars. Not on their good radars, but even still. The movie stars Tom Pryor, Oleg Zagorodnil, Diane Pozhogskaya, and Jake Henderson. You could tell what movies, uh, what names I read with ease and which ones I didn't. But Firebird sounds interesting. I don't know if I'm going to see it. I don't know if it's coming out in the theater near me, but I'll check it out if I, if I get the time. Another film that is subject to be released in, in theaters is one that's called For- Vortex. This one is directed by Gaspar Noé, and it's about the last days of an elderly couple stricken by dementia. The movie stars film legend Dario Argento, Francois Lebrun, Alex Lutz, and Killian Derrett. So Gaspar Noé is a director who is definitely not American. He's actually Argentinian. And Vortex is a film that might come out in a theater near me, but I can't guarantee it will come out near me or you because I don't know where you're listening to this uh, show from geographically. But there's one last film that's subject to be released in theaters on April 29th, and the movie is called Hatching. It's a movie about a young gymnast who tries desperately to please her demanding mother, and she discovers a strange egg. She hides it and keeps it warm, but when it hatches... What emerges shocks them all. This is a straight-up horror film. The movie uh, is directed by Hannah Bergholm, who is a director who is uh, from Finland. So this is probably not an American film. It sounds like a very interesting concept, albeit one that's been done before. But if I see this film, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And I previously, in my last segment, told you what's coming up next in terms of movies that are going to be released in theaters. There weren't a lot of memorable ones, a lot of international films, and one with Liam Neeson that is probably going to bore me to tears if I do, in fact, see it. But there's actually a lot that's being released on streaming that looks very interesting, at least from its concept. On Wednesday, April 27th, on Netflix, Netflix is going to release The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes. And I am in already, because uh, Marilyn Monroe remains a fascinating figure, literally uh, 60 years after she died mysteriously, and her death has been the subject of several conspiracy theories, a lot of which involve JFK. I'm very interested in, in seeing this film because if there are unheard tapes, I'm in. Because there was the four-part series on Netflix about the tapes of Ted Bundy, which I watched twice. There was a recent documentary about the unheard tapes of John Wayne Gacy, which I haven't seen yet, but I will. And maybe I'll review it for you on, on next week's show. Who knows? But... The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe, The Unheard Tapes, I am totally on board. I will see this eventually. Will I review it for you on next week's show? I don't exactly know, but I will do my best. There's another film that's premiering on Netflix that is a Netflix original, and it's called Silverton Siege. This one is a foreign film that I may or may not see. On Thursday, April 28th, there's a movie that's coming out that's called Bubble, and this is a film that is out of Japan. On Friday, April 29th, there are actually three films that are going to be premiering on Netflix, two of which are Netflix originals and both of which are foreign films. The first one is called Honeymoon with My Mother, which sounds revolting, uh, just brings up a lot of images that I want to immediately flush out of my head immediately, <laughs> even using the word immediately more than once. There's another one that's called Rumspringa that comes from somewhere else. It's got an interesting name. I don't know if I'm going to see it. And the last film that's going to be appearing on Netflix, but it is not a Netflix original, is called Youth v. Gov. And this is a film from 2020. And it is a film that is looks like a documentary. And it is directed by filmmaker and scientist Christy Cooper. And it's about uh, America's youth taking on the world's most powerful government in uh, 2015. And it, and it describes a particular lawsuit where 21 young plaintiffs ages 8 through 19 follow, filed the lawsuit Juliana versus the United States asserting a willful violation of their constitutional rights in creating our climate crisis. Okay, I'm on board already. This film was uh, came out uh, two years ago, but I missed it. But if these 21 plaintiffs are successful, they'll not only make history, they'll change the future. I'm on board with this film, absolutely, because climate change is one of those th uh, topics that scares me to death. If you watch some of the YouTube videos, even the ones that kind of sugarcoat climate change, climate change is scary. And people aren't doing enough about it. And I'm especially mad at some of the conservative pundits, especially Candace Owens, who say that climate change is a hoax and a conspiracy theory. 
I want to tell Candace Owens to get bent. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Ignore her. But of course, because she's pretty and she's opinionated, people listen to her. But it's movies like these and it's people like this that make a difference. I am so happy about this. And it might seem weird coming from a person who hated the movie Don't Look Up, but Don't Look Up approached this kind of willful ignorance of some Americans the wrong way. And its target was just scattershot. But even though I didn't like the movie Don't Look Up, climate change is real. I'm not going to say I believe in climate change. It's not just that I believe it. I know that it's real. And I'm really frustrated for the scientists who are you know, high profile like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson or Bill Nye who are screaming at people that A, we can change our ways as humans and B, we can change our ways so that we can still live the lifestyle that we do while combating climate change. It's just a matter of using renewable resources. And just anybody else who does not believe in climate change can do something that I cannot say on the radio, so I will just pass on that. (laughs) But Youth VGov will be appearing on Netflix, maybe even premiering on Netflix on Friday, April 29th, 2022. This is a movie that I will see. I'll hope to see it before my show next week. I can't guarantee it, but I will definitely do my best to do so. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke. And until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.